Good day, my friends, and welcome to the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by the legendary Sergio Tacchini, the brand worn by John McEnroe, Vitas Carolitis, Novak Djokovic, and Gabriela Sabatini. 20 years ago, Goran Ivanisevic won Wimbledon in Tacchini, and we will be doing giveaways of a special t-shirt commemorating Goran's famous People's Monday victory. Be on the lookout for that. Check them out at SergioTacchini.com and use the code CRAIG30 in all caps to receive 30% off of your order. Today's guest was a literature major specializing in Shakespeare as well as an All-American at Princeton University. In 1984, he upset Yvonne Lendl on his way to the finals of Queens Club. That same year, he reached 31 in the world, which would be his career high. Since retirement in the early 90s, he has been a prolific broadcaster in both the United Kingdom and the United States. Now he is regularly heard on Tennis Channel's coverage throughout the year. Leif Shiras is today's guest. So hold on a second. You're in La Jolla, is that right? I'm actually in Laguna Hills. You're in Laguna. Laguna, yeah. You just had a 15-hour morning. <laughs> I got I got up pretty early, yeah. <laughs> what time did you wake up? My my alarm was set for 1:45. What time did you go to bed? I, I went to bed around uh, 9:30. That's about as late. That's about as early as I can go to bed. <laughs> so you did about four hours sleep. Drove yeah. about an hour and 15 yeah, minutes. It's about 50 minutes. At that minutes. time of the morning, I can make some good time. So it's about 50 minutes into the studio, yeah. And then you basically broadcast four finals. Essentially, yeah. I think uh, they won a couple of them overlapped. So it was sort of really three. The women's matches went fairly quickly, which was a little surprising, I thought. But, uh, you know, good final for Dumanar. That was a good match. Man, you're, but you're like the hardest working guy in, in tennis <laughs> right now. Well, yeah, no, I do. I enjoy it. So it's worth the trip for me. Gentlemen, you hear, in addition to being a, a Princeton Tiger, uh, All-American at Princeton, he got to 31 in the world. He has a silky smooth voice, and he just broadcasts all morning for Tennis Channel. I don't think a lot of people know what kind of a player he was. Um, we've known each other a long time now, and that's Leif Shiras. Well, hey, it's great to be here, man. Great to see you, and uh, thanks for including me in your uh, your endeavors. This is great. Now, does anyone call you George? I have to ask. Uh, no, you know, my dad's name was George, so we had two Georges around the house, so they came up with Leaf, which I suppose the fact that I ended up a tennis player was a little ironic because, I, you know, all these Swedes around me, they thought I was Scandinavian. So it worked out well for me. They sort of took me in as one of their own used to practice with all the Swedish guys because of that nickname. So it worked for me down the long haul. But, but So no one calls you George? <laughs> no. The only time I see a G in my name was when I was playing Wimbledon. I'd look at the scoreboards and the schedule on the big boards outside. It was always G.L. Shiras. So I got a, a little mention at Wimbledon. That's it. Little known fact, Leif Shiras' uh, real name is George. Um, listen, man, it's so good to see you. As you know, we do a five-set format. The first set, we're going to blow right through it. We're just going to go hard into the second set. That's the on-the-court report. What have your impressions been of the grass court season? You know, kind of broad strokes. Uh, let's start with the women. Have you seen anything very interesting? You know, I, I think the grass court season, is it's sort of been reflecting what the women have been all about, you know, the last year or two or three is, you know, how 
available and open the opportunities are. I, I just feel like there are so many sort of talented players who can break through any week and make good things happen. I think we saw that a little bit on the grass uh, coming into Wimbledon this year. Um, you know, the matches we did this morning, Delaney well, I mean, Ostapenko. I mean, I, I mean, Ostapenko, Contevi, Kerber, a lot of these players, I, I kind of call them the microwaves. They just can really, like, crank up and, and heat up very quick. Yeah, exactly. I think that's the way it is. I think, you know, you, if you can get hot for a week or six months or a year, you can really make some deep inroads in the game. I, I don't think Serena is as dominant as she was. She's obviously not playing as much as she once was. So I think a lot of these opportunities, if you can get your head right, get your body right, and put together some wins, you can make some deep runs. Obviously, going into Wimbledon, one of the more glaring things that we've seen is that, you know, are the absences, right? Simona Holop's been out since Rome, and and obviously Naomi Osaka being out of commission is pretty glaring. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's the nature of the beast. You know, you got to take care of yourself. And obviously, it's a little disappointing not to have a defending champ in there. Uh, again, a little bit reflective of the women's side. I mean, over the last seven years, they've had six different champions, Serena having won it a couple times in that period. So, again, opportunities about. I mean, I think you have to lean a little bit if dark horses exist. I mean, you know, someone like Petra Kvitova, who's playing well and is always dangerous. You know, Bianca Andreescu, when is she going to rise? And it, can it happen on a grass court for her? There are just so many stories on the women's side, including Ash Barty. Can she be healthy enough as the top seed? She's going to play the first match uh, for the women. So that's kind of exciting for Ash, who I think is, has earned that distinction, despite not having one yet at Wimbledon, obviously taking Simona's spot as the returning champion. But, um, you know, there's just so many stories. It's tough to pick one to put your finger on and say, this is definitely what's going to happen, because there are just too many possibilities. It was interesting to see Ostapenko this morning play well. I was surprised to hear that she'd only won five tournaments. You know, obviously the French Open being one of them. Yeah, and, and now with the addition of the title in Eastbourne, she's won a grass court tournament. I, I think it says a lot about the possibility that's inherent in her game when she gets it going. I mean, she hits the ball hard, and when she's confident, you know, she can be as dangerous as anyone. I mean, she won a major title. I mean, how many women are there with, I think there are 18 active players with major titles on the women's side. I mean, that's a remarkable number when you consider how stingy the men's side has been with only eight guys, you know, the big four and I guess the big five have really sort of locked up those majors on the women's side. It's, it's not that way. Possibilities are there. And I think this could be another exciting fortnight for someone to make some noise. Did you have a look at the draw by chance? Did, are there I any? Did. Ma- oh yeah. Um, what matches do you think are kind of popcorny starting on? I guess the bottom half plays Monday. Yeah, I, I just, you know, Serena is obviously in the top half with uh, Ash Barty. But, I mean, players, you know, Arena Sabalenka and Rhea Sakari, all these players have possibilities because of their game style, because of how aggressive they can be. You know. It, can they keep it together, keep their head together? Can Madison Keys make a run? She has the potential with her big hitting game if she can get her feet underneath her. You know, part of the success about grass, like on clay, is finding that comfortable place where you can actually move well and, and run freely without slipping and falling. And so you have to maintain your balance. That can be a challenge for a lot of players. And that's where the lack of match play can be significant. But all these players are so talented in that if, if they get it going, Carolina Pliskova, she might square off 
against Petra Kvitova in the third or fourth round. I mean, there are possibilities inherent there, too. Wait, wait, but hang on, back up. I mean, Kvitova has to play Sloan Stevens first round. That's right. I, I, I do think Kvitova will have the edge in that one. Again, I think Sloan is capable of hitting great shots and doing great things on any surface. But I just think Kvitova's had enough matches now. She's got a pretty good head on her shoulders, as does Sloan now, as she's starting to get back to what she used to be. I mean, that's obviously one of the matches, but I think I'm going to give Petra the edge there as much as I like Sloan, and I hope that she can do well. I mean, I wouldn't be happy if either one went through, but I'd probably, in my heart, I'd say Sloan. In my head, I'd probably say Kvitova. I think a lot of people, too, are interested to watch Sviantek play uh, Suwei Shea, who, you know, slices and dices and really frustrates a lot of players. Yeah, and I, I think Shea Suwei's got the skills to disrupt Igor Svantec, that's for certain. And Svantec doesn't have tremendous experience on the grass, uh, nor tremendous success, I guess you could say, because she is so so new to it. And remember, these players haven't played in a couple of years. Shea Sue might have a little better feel adjusting to the grass. If she can keep the ball out of Iga's strike zone and make her awkward, make her uncomfortable, she's got a shot. But I do feel like Svantec has got enough to get through that one. I think she's a pretty good campaigner, pretty good warrior, so she'll need to be at her best. Now, did you hear any interesting information um, all morning today uh, about anything going on over at S- in uh, SW19? Did you hear anything interesting? Well, you know, I, I think what I'm hearing is that the players are in a pretty significant bubble situation. A very you know, tight the bubble. LTA have tight taken, bubble. you know, what is it, the Park Plaza Hotel, and that they've made that their own. So all the players are there. So this, you know, is, is a situation they're familiar with. Uh, I'm sure they're hoping that this will be the last, although I hear it's pretty comfortable for the players in there with a wonderful restaurant and ability to work out and do things like that and all their transportation needs met because they don't have homes in in uh, Wimbledon Village like they used to in the past. So they'll be. I got to say, I feel like that's, uh, I mean, that travel from, you know, London proper from downtown London to Wimbledon's a long drive, man. It is. It is. You're right. And, uh, Back in the day, everyone used to stay in the city, and that was fine. But again, you're right. You got to get in, hopefully, not get in some traffic. Your, you know, sort of your car can be stuck in all these, you know, roads in London that are really meant for horse cots, not for automobiles. It's really a lot different than being able to walk down the, the road from the village into the tennis. It's a big difference in terms of scheduling, I think. Huge difference. You got to get up earlier. You got to pack your bag and make sure you haven't forgotten anything because you don't second chance to go back up the road and pick something up at your house right. let's move over to the men's side it seems to me like there's a few players that we're seeing week in and week out making like real noise and i would put sonego in there i'd put berrettini in there i'd put daniel medvedev in there it seems like there's a few guys that are just thumping everybody week in and week out <laughs> yeah you know, that's that's the nature of the game right now. You've got a lot of these young guys who are starting to understand the things that they can do out there. You know, Stefano Tsitsipas, I mean, he takes down Francis Tiafo in the first round. That's going to be a nice little match for Francis. Uh, and, and for Steph, I, I feel like Steph has got a great shot there. But I would put Tsitsipas in that list of guys who are starting to get a handle on what they can do, how good they can be. And Medvedev, with his win in Majorca now on grass, suddenly he might have a little bit of belief that, you know, I could maybe do this. He's done it in Melbourne, done it in New York. Why can't I do it in London? Now, would it be fair to say you watched a lot of uh, his tennis this week? How did yes. you, I didn't see much. How did he look? 
he looked really good. He looked good. And, uh, you know, I'm, the only thing that is so shocking to me, and I know Rafa has been doing this for years, is on a grass court, these guys can assume such a deep return position. But for 6-6, he returns so well, and he also moves well to back it up. So he has tremendous faith in his legs, and that makes him super dangerous. I just wonder, though, if there is an effective attacking player, someone who can attack at the right times, whether he is vulnerable. But, you know, these guys just defend so well now, Craig. It's, it's, it's tough to get a handle on them and attack consistently and get it done consistently. You're going to have to take a few knocks if you're going to be coming in, say, all the time. You've got to be selective about when you do make moves forward. Do you think that this is uh, Andy Murray and Fed's last turnaround, the Sun, last turnaround, SW19? Yeah, I, you know, I hope it's not. I love seeing these guys around. They've defined our game for so long. Uh, I feel like, well, I think there's going to be pressure on both these guys. You know, you, no matter where you are in a career, everyone says, oh, well, no pressure. You got, you got a chance to just go for it. I think there's pressure for these guys to perform. And he's been away from it for a while, particularly on the grass. And, you know, can he move well enough to support his game? Can he go five and, and play a long, hard match and recover? And the same could be said of Roger. We saw that. So, Can he? Can he? I, I, I'm not betting on it. I think yeah. some of these young guys, I mean, you saw what Berrettini did to Andy at Queens. I mean, these young guys play big, man. They bring a lot of weight to shot. They bring a lot of confidence. I mean, Andy Murray was a young man once. He knows how driven these young guys are. He was once one of them. Yeah, and by the way, he plays Basilashvili, who's one of the hardest hitters amongst these laser these guys are all hitting lasers and this guy hits it harder than all the rest i mean it's yeah, gonna no. be a bloodbath i, I like watching boston billy play because he is so talented i i'm not sure he has enough variety and enough game i think andy's got a good shot in that one mm. but um yeah, remember boston really beat roger Federer earlier this year saved a match point getting it done that was in roger's comeback in doha so he's yeah, I think he won the title, too, did Basilashvili. So this is a guy who can play. He's got confidence. We'll see how that great baseline game of his works on the grass. Uh, you know, Roger, I mean, he's going to come in with so much. What has he got, eight titles? You know, he's he's going to be very comfortable with this situation, walking on the court. He's always talked about how you can never guarantee anything when you walk out on the court. And I, I'm sure he's feeling that even more now. You know, what am I going to have today? How good can I be? And, and what can I depend on? And he, he, we'll have to see. I, I hope his legs can be strong enough to carry him through this. The five sets is the truth, though, isn't it? I think so. Yeah. I think so. I think we saw a lot of championship matches today that went a little quickly on the grass. The grass matches, the points are shorter. Uh, you have to be super laser focused. And, you know, I just sometimes don't feel like two out of three sets is enough tennis. You guys used to play a lot of five set finals. There used to be a lot of five-set – there used to be a lot more five-set tournaments. So you'd get to the major and you had that experience. seems like these younger guys, they get into a fourth set and they lose – even if they're up two sets to love, they, they have the ability to lose a set in 15 minutes and then all of a sudden it's like, whoa, 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 what just happened here? Yeah. No, I, I think that's absolute truth. You know, five-setters, you don't have as much experience doing it. Remember when we used to have – five set championship matches in the masters 1000. Yeah, okay. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Maybe that was limited to guys who were getting to the finals. I think we saw that more often in Davis cup guys were getting Davis cup experience with five setters. So we saw it from Musetti in Paris running out of gas against Novak. We saw that with Stefano Tsitsipas running out of gas. So 
These are you know things that young players take a little more time, right, to conquer. I got to be honest, I can't get that out of my mind. You know, when Sitsipas was up two sets to love in that French Open final, and he, he lost that third set so fast. And then all of a sudden, it's like, wait a second. <laughs> and he just, he got extremely tight right up, right up for the next hour, right? Like he just, yep. he never could catch his breath on his tightness. And you, you saw the experience from Novak too, right? And yeah. suddenly he was playing a little bit faster, wasn't taking as much time bouncing the ball because he had one of the most powerful forces in sport working in his favor. Momentum. He had the momentum. And boy, these guys are so skilled at using everything to gain their advantage, whether it's a single moment, the momentum, turning things around. And, and that's what Novak did on a couple of occasions. It was a brilliant performance in Paris. Just want to mention Ugo Umbert has been playing big time, big time tennis. And he's playing, you know, Curious, who hasn't played a match in I mean, probably 15 months, right? That's exactly right. I'm so happy that Kyrgios is back. I mean, he he doesn't mind wearing the black hat, but he's also, like a John McEnroe, a very skilled player who's so captivating to watch. I don't know. That's going to be a brilliant match. I really like the way Umber plays. You know, this is a guy who's always on his front foot. He's aggressive. He finds ways to win points. I think he's a good watch. And against Kyrgios, I think it's it's going to be great. Wait, but, but, but you can't just show up and play play Wimbledon right like he's gonna his first match back is good I mean is he that good that he can do that um, he can play well at Wimbledon on on Monday or we're gonna find out we're gonna find out yeah now, he has the great fortune of possessing one of the biggest and best serves in the game and grass court tennis boy you can use your serve so effectively to help drive the score drive your you know sort of place in a set so he's got a possibility of, you know, maybe getting into a third, maybe a fourth set, and that's where Umber will be challenged. Again, a young player playing a five-setter. Kyrgios, a little more experience in that regard. Dimonauer just had a tournament of his life. He played so well, and he played Sebastian Corda first round. Oh, man, there there's so many money matches. I mean, I, I, I really enjoy watching both those guys. I mean, Seb Corda, he's got – the makings of a great grass court player because of how he plays. Um, one thing I think we learned from Dimonor is that you can I'm play. Sorry, let me stop you for a second. What do you mean by the way he plays? He could be he could be good there. I'll get in. Okay, do you want to see it up again? No, no. Just say what do you mean uh, about sub quarter being able to play well on grass? I think on grass, you know, Corda has these physical attributes. He's tall. He's athletic, and he he's got weapons that are dependable. He's got a fabulous two handed backhand. I think he returns serve well, which is a key on grass. I, I think in the coming years, he'll get more out of his serve, but I think he's got enough in it right now that he's going to have a lot of success and effectiveness on grass. How important is the sort of minimal grip changes that like maybe a guy like Corda has? He's got minimal grip changes. Isn't it true that on the grass, it's much more advantageous to have slight grip changes I, I think so. I think you're right. And we talk about the value of the return of serve and these guys who wait with an extreme forehand grip. I mean, look at Aslan Karatsev. You know, he waits with his hands separated in the grip. You know, most two-handers tend to wait with their left hand down near their right hand so they can get that turn on a return. He likes to separate his hands. You know, is that a factor? I mean, you're right. I know these are small details, but they become significant on a slick court like grass in a three and a five set 
match where a couple of moments can swing the match one way or the other. But yeah, these guys with extreme grips, how do you defend their serve on that forehand side if you've got a grip like this on your forehand? So crazy. Um, and I, I think that's one of the keys for Tsitsipas, Craig, if I may say. I feel like Tsitsipas struggles a bit on his forehand return of serve. I wonder if he can be consistent off that wing enough. You know, I don't know if you watched Roland Garros a bit, but I felt like he didn't get enough balls in play on his forehand at times. He misses. Uh, he misses long. I, I have to. I... Yeah, sometimes I felt like he missed some in the net where balls were on oh, his really? strings, but he just didn't manage to control it comfortably mm. enough. I think his return to serve is going to be tested and could tell us, you know, how he's going to do, you know, on a grass court. It's going to be interesting. So, I mean, some of the projections they're talking about is Djokovic versus Rublev in the quarters, Sitsipas versus Bautista Agu in the quarters, Zverev versus Berrettini in the quarters. And if Fed is healthy, he could he would potentially play Medvedev in the quarters. Yeah. I think Rogers I, – I like Rogers' draw if yeah. he's able to get through that. I mean, I, I think if he were a Novak's half – might be not so nice, but I, I do think he's got possibilities. I mean, Berrettini's shown how rough he can be, but Medvedev. Uh, I know Medvedev had his first breakthrough back in 2017. Remember, he beat Stan Wawrinka in the first round, and we were like, who is this kid? You know, And then had some issues in his second-round match with Liam Brody. Remember, he threw some coins at the chair. I think that was when that happened. <laughs> it was a bit of a disruptive influence, but you know, that's when he booked up with uh, Servar as his, his coach for a long period of time, and that sort of start triggered you know, jump-started his career so maybe this is his moment to shine if he gets up against roger he's gonna feel like uh-oh another chance to define myself i'm just gonna say it federer was he 39 years old is he 39? i think that's right yeah 49 years old plays manorino to play gasquet to play nori to play Karina busta that's not a bad first week if you think about it yeah, that's super advantageous. You know, I, I think all those guys are doable. Um, I mean, I'm not diminishing them at all. And I'm and not then, saying by the way, he would go to then he'd play Medvedev to play the winner of Berrettini Zverev. If obviously, if everything held up, and then yes. oh, so so the Joker would play Sitsipas in the semi on the other side. Yeah, I mean, who's beating Joker, Leaf? I don't. <laughs> Is anybody beating the Joker? I mean, it's it's. Just so amazing what this man is able to do. It's, I mean, you know, the Golden Slam. <clears throat> that conversation is being had right now. I just call it the Grand Slam. Golden Slam. Know, I'm purist. If you win the Grand Slam, you got to win them all in one year in the same year. He's really taking a go. He's really got to go at this, this this year, huh? I think so. You know, his coach talks about it, and he has that sort of ambition right in his head. He, he wants that kind of achievement, and he wants – to define himself as that great. So do you know Novak? Do you know him? Have you spoken to him? No, I, I know his coach, Marion Vida, pretty well. Marion and I was on were on the tour at the same time together. A lovely guy, but you know, Marion is maybe the first one who voiced that belief that they've actually talked about that. And it, it's something that could be done. Do you ever talk with Vida? Do you ever have any uh interesting conversations with him? I haven't been on the road with Marion in a while, so yeah. You know, but uh, I mean, he's one of the reasons why Novak has had the success he's had. I mean, Marion always had a good sense of the return of serve. I think he's instilled a lot of those good qualities in Novak's return. 
and maybe even Marion doesn't get as enough credit as he should. I know he's been steering the ship for a long time, and Novak is this transcendent athlete, but you got to surround yourself with the right people, and that's a collaboration that has absolutely worked. And he'll he'll have Goran will be back on the bag uh, this this uh, this tournament too, right? Goran takes the clay off, I think. <laughs> I think Goran's always good to have around. I think they bench Goran for the clay, and then they bring him back for the grass. <laughs> That's perfect. That's perfect. I mean, coaching matters. You know, people who say, "Oh, well, these coaches travel and well, they hand the balls and you know, pat them on the back." Well, there's a lot that goes into good coaching, and we've seen how great coaching can turn things out great for players. So, you know, all those things are so important to Novak and to look up and see Goran up there supporting you with his, you know, wisdom over the years. I know Goran was at times a bit of a character, but I think he's a good influence in that camp. This, by the way, uh, the 20th anniversary of Goran uh, coming through that tournament, boy. People's Monday. That's actually, yeah, good memory. That's right. Yeah, no, I'm... I mean, can you imagine what a handful he would be with that big serve coming at you? You could or you could make a case that he had the greatest serve of all time. And, you know, I think he was one reason why they sort of changed the grass, didn't they? They started putting in the rye grass, made it more supportive of a good true bounce. I think that was one of the years when Leighton Hewitt and David Nalbandian came through because it was a response to what Goran yeah. was doing with his serve. Yeah, there was like five South Americans in the quarters or something. <laughs> I think Nicholas Lapenti made the quarters that year. If you remember, Nico, do you care to share any predictions? Do you, do you have you have any feel? Well, I mean, I really would like to see some players, you know, like Riley Opelka or Dennis Shapovalov or Felix Ojealiasin make a deep run and make a name for themselves in the second week, if only to establish in their mind that they're like legitimate guys that can do this, you know. And I think it takes a big moment like this in this modern era that's so competitive that I can be at this level with these, the big guys. And I think Tsitsipas and Medvedev have done that. We've seen that from Zverev, who we haven't really talked about, if Zverev can get it together. But, you know, some of these guys who I, I enjoy watching play, who have a little bit of all-court play about them, I think it's nice to see players who can do a little bit of everything and make the game interesting. If they can understand that and do that on the grass, I think they can have success out there. And the courts, from what I hear from a couple of the guys, is you know the grass is pretty lush this year. It's pretty full. So whether they go for another trim on the grass before play on Monday, that might be significant. Remember all these things. These that's little, what I'm hearing is that yeah. they're gonna. The thought the thought is is that it's fluffy right now. That they're gonna. By the time this podcast is in the people's ears. The grass will be have been trimmed. Yeah, razor I think that's right. Thin, razor tight, razor tight. Exactly. And, you know, these courts are beautiful, as are all the courts. I mean, Wimbledon supports all, all the grass court events in the lead-up season. They provided the seed and the grass for Bad Homburg. They provide supervision and, uh, I don't know, grounds crew for all these events. So Wimbledon is the master courts. I mean, Queens are beautiful. But Wimbledon, boy, they are sweet, you know. But still... Again, there's the challenge of moving on grass. It's not easy to do. You get outside the lines. You're playing someone who can open up the court. That can be tricky because you get outside the singles line, the doubles line. Boy, you can start slipping and falling out there. I mean, didn't Roger hurt his knee against Raonic with a with a fairly innocuous slip on the grass in his match years ago? So you've got to be yeah. careful out there. 
is that a fact that Wimbledon uh, grounds crew is tight to all the other grass court tournaments and, and in fact provides the, the seed? I know they did that for Bad Homber because that's a, a fairly new event, an inaugural event on right. the WHA happening last year. Obviously didn't happen, but this year, I mean, those courts were beautiful courts. I mean, yeah. it seems like the grass courts now are unbelievable, Craig. I mean, back in my day, the grass <laughs> was a bit soft and you could aim for a certain spot and get a bad bounce. It's tough to find those spots nowadays. <laughs> Prediction, anything? Do you, do, you have a, do you have a feel for, are you going to pick anyone to win this thing? Is it going to be Novak and uh, Barty? Is it going to be Serena? Because Serena come through? You know, I, I, you know, I feel like I, I like to pick outside the box, which like, it's hard to do because there are so many possibilities on the women's side. I think Ash Barty's got a chance if she can be healthy. But I'll tell you one, you know, one American we haven't talked about, and there are plenty of American possibilities, is Coco Vandeweghe. I mean, Coco yeah. Vandeweghe is a two-time quarterfinalist there, and I know she hasn't played a lot of tennis, but she's got a big game. She could be a little bit of an issue, and she's up in Coco's section of the draw. So, uh, excuse me, Ash Barty's section Barty of the draw. Section. And then also maybe Coco Golf, where she's coming back to where she had her breakthrough. I mean, I, you know, these are some people I would like to watch and, and see you have a big week, too. Lee Shire is always pulling for the Americans. <laughs> Let's move into the third set. This is the portion of our show where we discuss your career. I have to tell you, my father's from Waterbury, Connecticut, uh, where we're New Englanders. Are you, in fact, a New Englander? Or are you, or were you just born in Norwalk, Connecticut? Yeah, pretty much just born in Norwalk. My parents lived in Rowayton, Connecticut. My dad commuted into New York where he was working. Um, yeah, and then we, in 63, we moved to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where ultimately, you know, I went to school and high school and played my tennis. You're a Midwest, sorry, you're a Midwest player. That's you're I'm a, a Midwest guy. Were you bopping around with the with the Gullicksons? Was that? Was yeah, that- I was, uh, when I was a ball kid, I ball boyed for Mike Cahill. John Whitlinger and Tim and Tom Gullickson, who were sort of the lead players out of Wisconsin in that era in the 70s when these guys were doing big things in the game. Obviously, the Gullicksons had the greatest success. But, yeah, no, the Gullies were a little bit, uh, you know, Tom and Tim were mentors for me in a way. They steered me to a coach that helped me get going with my game as a pro. So, um, yeah, it was cheesehead power, Craig, cheesehead power. So you played junior tennis in the Midwest. In, yes, in- in, in 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 Wisconsin, did you play, you know, national tournaments? Like, how did you get good? I guess. You know, I I was always playing a lot of sports when I was young, and right through high school, I played volleyball, basketball, and tennis. And um, I was you know fortunate enough that I had some success in tennis in high school, won the state high school title a couple times. And so I, you know, Princeton University, where my dad went to school, took an interest in me in tennis. They have a pretty good tennis program. Um, so I was fortunate enough to go there. And that's really where my game started to grow. You know, I, it was very competitive in the Midwest. I wasn't, I was pretty good uh, in the Midwest. You know, I lost early in Kalamazoo. So I wasn't a junior of any great distinction. But when I got to college, I started beating some guys and I was growing into my body, surrounded by some really good players. Jay Lapidus, who was a, a top Lapidus. player. Yeah. Steve Meister, who won, I want to say, 15 doubles titles. So for an Ivy League school, we had some very talented players. In fact, I know this will shock you, but I think we were top 10 in the country my junior year. So. No, no, I I was doing my research, and, and you you became elite in college. You were not an elite junior. Correct, correct. 
I've done, yeah, no, I was, that's pretty much true. <laughs> but were you playing like orange bowls and traveling to Florida? Like, were you, were you, were you going up against like, you know, players in, in LA? Yeah, and- no, I mean, I, I did play, you know, the Western open. I played the indoor nationals. I played Kalamazoo, but I didn't really play the junior circuit too much. And I was working on my 17 foot jump shot in my bounce pass playing <laughs> basketball for the Shorewood Greyhounds. So, uh, like the Gullicksons, we were kind of all sport guys, Yeah, uh, which I think helped me. You know, by the time I got to college and the pros, I didn't have any really feelings of burnout of, you know, boy, I've done this before. It was all kind of new to me. So I was able to really spend a lot of time at it. So it was, I guess, a positive in a lot of ways. Did you, did you graduate Princeton? I did actually. Yeah. Did, you, did you turn pro in advance of graduating or you, you went all four years and went then turned pro? Yeah, I, I ended up going all four years. You know, I wasn't quite good enough, you know, my junior year and senior year. I think I needed another year to grow up. Uh, you know, I, I still had the, a little more maturing to do, I suppose you could say. Uh-huh. But, um, yeah, I mean, it was a valuable season for me. You know, I, I went to the NCAAs. I think I was seated in the top eight maybe, and I got beaten early. Um, so it was a bit of a wake-up call. When uh, was the first time you saw John McEnroe? Well, I, I played Johnny Mac in the NC2As my junior year. Jay Lapidus and I played them in Georgia in the quarterfinals of the NC2As. He was playing alongside Bill Mays, very strong player, and they ended up beating us in a pretty close match. So Jay and I were all Americans, and uh, that junior um, I think I got to the semis. Or no, the next year I got to this. That was sophomore year, sorry. Junior year I got to the semis of the singles. So I always played pretty well at the university of georgia and uh but john i knew you know i knew him in the juniors and he was you did just so blessed with talent you know you watch this guy play as a junior he seemed to have something without seemingly having spent a lot of time on court he was another multi-sport kid who happened to be super skilled at tennis did you ever beat him in juniors or in college i don't think i played him in singles but uh, he got me a couple times in doubles but he came out of the east with you know guys like peter rennert I think Peter Fleming was maybe coming out of New Jersey as well. He was a little bit older than us, but that's how they got to know each other at a young age. And Pete ended up going to University of Michigan, then UCLA, and ultimately teaming up with John. So there's some good history there with uh, John and some of the players around us at that time. So when, when did you think you could be a pro player? You know, uh, we used to play an indoor tournament, uh, a a collegiate indoor event. And I remember I played Steve Denton from the University of Texas on an indoor carpet court. And I grew up on indoor carpet. So it was very familiar to me playing in Milwaukee. Oh, just by the way, I did take lessons as a kid from uh, Mike Russell's dad, Iron Mike Russell's dad, George Russell, who's the director of tennis at the Milwaukee Indoor Tennis Club. So uh, he helped me a lot when I was young. But I did beat Steve Denton, who at that time was a big shot uh, in yeah. the game alongside Kevin Curran. They both played at Texas. And, um, uh, you know, I think when I beat him, I just thought to myself, you know, maybe I've got a shot. Maybe I could, you know, get a few matches under my belt and maybe make some money doing this. It seemed a long way away, but at least that seed was planted when I had that win. So you just started playing pro tournaments? I just basically finished out my senior year. And I, I think junior year, I was on the junior Davis Cup team. So I had a sense of the direction I needed, what tournaments to play. So upon graduating in senior year, um, you know, I tried to get some money together with my dad, who 
created a little syndicate of some gentlemen in Milwaukee who helped uh, raise some money for me to, to play the tour. And uh, that's kind of how I got my start. Yeah. Your father put together a few of his buddies to, to, to stake <laughs> you. Yes. Yeah. We had to, you know, we worked them over with some cold paps blue ribbon and, you know, got them to, <laughs> to support me. So it was really nice to these guys to help get my career started. Do you remember when you cracked the top hundred? You know, it, it, what's interesting is, you know, back in my era, you could have a good run where you maybe win a challenger tournament, uh, put together another good result, which I did. And suddenly I was in the top hundred, I want to say in maybe 82, 83. And suddenly you're getting a swing. You get it. I got into the Australian open ranked outside the top hundred, you know, in that, in that era, not everyone played that tournament. So if you were outside the top hundred, you could still get direct entry. So I'd make the trip down to Australia and get into some of those events. So I started to get my feet wet against some of the guys and getting a feel for it. And I wouldn't say I was an overnight sensation, but I, I think I grew into a pretty good pro. You know, I was beating a lot of guys and on a good day, I could beat a very good player. You know, I, you know, I beat Lendl at Queens. I beat, you know, Andres Gomez. Well, we're going to talk about that. Because <laughs> I think you've done a very good job of, when you broadcast, you don't really, people don't know that you're a very good player, that you have wins over major champions and world number ones. Who were you in 1984? I mean, 1984 by far was your greatest moment in tennis. Yeah, and I think it's it's funny as an athlete or as a, well, whatever you do in life, sometimes you're defined by that single moment in time. And that was for me in terms of tennis, that was it, where I, I showed up to play qualifying on, I want to say the Saturday, I think you had to sign in in the morning, if I remember correctly. I, si I was about to sign in. They go, oh, you're the last one in. You got in the main draw. Well, like, hold on a second. Yeah. Set it up. Uh, Queens Club. <laughs> Queens Club. I think, right. I walked into the grounds of the Queens Club to sign in for qualies, and they said, oh, you got in the main draw. There was a withdrawal. So I was the next guy in. So I said, oh, that's great news. And I said, well, it is good news, but you also drew – Yvonne Lendl in the first round, who at that time was just coming off having won at Roland Garros. He you know, just won the French Open in that brilliant victory over John McEnroe. Um, so this was how the scene was set for me to, to play on Tuesday in the main draw at Queens Club. Well, who were you at that moment? I mean, this is, <laughs> you know, uh, middle of June, 1984. Yeah, you know, I was a guy with a couple of years experience looking for a breakthrough. You know, oftentimes, again, at this time in our career and this time on the tour, during the clay court season, second week of the French, they would have prize money tournaments in London. So you could go play in Beckenham or some of these smaller little venues, and they'd have prize money tournaments, and you'd have full draws with all the guys who were out of the clay, and you could get a lot of matches in. And I think I, I got to the finals of a prize money tournament, so I was winning matches, and you know, for me, getting a little bit of spending money, it was a big deal with getting a little bit of spending money. So I think I was ready for my moment. You know, I was really ready. And Queens Club, I don't know if people realize that that's actually the Queens Club, right? Like that's, it's a very prestigious place. It's not, when they say the Queen, it's the Queen of England. <laughs> that's right. It's, uh, she was the first patron, Queen Victoria. That's how far the club goes back. And they've got some of those beautiful grass courts right in the heart of London, right in West Kensington. So it really is a very special place. It's got a great history. You know, John McEnroe, Boris Becker, Leighton Hewitt, Andy Roddick, all these guys have used it as the touchstone ahead of Wimbledon. Obviously now with Holla developing as a major event, you've got two of these touchstone events. 
But hold on, get back to your week, man. You take the court with Lendl. I mean, what <laughs> were you just cranking on all cylinders? Is it your best moment? Is it your best week? It was huge. It was it was huge. And I just remember sitting in the locker room, quite nervous before going out on the court. And Wally Masur, a, a fellow player and a, an Australian, very accomplished player and a really good player, he goes, you know, I, I think he got a shot today, mate. You know, he hasn't, you know, he's coming off the clay. He hasn't played a match on the grass coming from Roland Garros directly. And I have to admit, Lundell put it on the line. He, you know, wins the French Open. And when I played him, he was still kicking the clay out of his shoes. So I think Wally, Wally was saying to me was right, that he was pretty vulnerable right there. And, uh, you know, I was a pretty good serving volleyer and a good athlete. I could get to a lot of balls and get to a lot of first volleys, you know. Um, so I put a lot of pressure on him. He was up a break, I think, in the first set, broke back, won the first serve. Suddenly the crowd is murmuring, you know, oh, boy, this guy's uh, <laughs> he's teetering. And so, I mean, I ended up taking it. It was pretty shaky down the stretch because I was so damn nervous. But, uh, you know, I ended up getting him. And the crowd loved me. The British press loved me because I was an English major. They called me Shakespeare Shiris. So uh, <laughs> it, it all went really well for me. So, you know, it became maybe bigger than it was. You had some other big wins that week too, huh? Yeah, I mean, they, you know, the press loved me because I'd always come in and say something interesting about Shakespeare or <clears throat> something. I, I was a failed English major, so even if I didn't tell them that, but they did enjoy that, <clears throat> that in America would take such pleasure in one of their favorite stars, you know, William Shakespeare. But, um, you know, I ended up beating Guy Forget and Rodney Harmon. I was down match points to Brian Teacher, who at that time was a top 10 player. And that was on an outside court that didn't get much attention, but I probably should have been, you know, shown the door against Brian. So I guess it was a week of destiny for me in some ways. And then you lost to Mac. Yeah. And, you know, it was a pretty good final, really good. Final. I mean, I was so nervous going out there, man. I mean, it was full house, 12,000. And, you know, I'd never been in that situation before that was getting to know John again. You know, I saw him. he was very cool in the locker room, you know, doing his thing and, what's up man good to see you know good to see you and then he was doing his own thing and um you know I won the second set played pretty well and that's when he had one of the tantrums of all time right before the start of the third and it was a five to ten minute interruption you know he had this the referees and the supervisors out on the court and he was holding court and they didn't really know what to do. There was no code of conduct. You know, you didn't have the clock working to get play resumed. So I was just sitting there and the crowd was getting into it. I mean, it was a bit nerve wracking and John was orchestrating all this madness. And, you know, he really thrives in that environment. And anyways, what I probably should have won the match. I'm sorry, what was the code. beef? What was the beef? <laughs> well, I think he felt he had a couple calls that weren't acknowledged. Now, remember, we didn't have Hawkeye then either. Yeah. So um, he was pretty upset. And, um, you know, I was just along for the ride as he was the master of this ship. But um, I had the first break points in the third. I know that. And he had a good serve out wide to my backhand. I could hit a pretty good backhand. Hit it up the line, Craig, and it was going in for the break. I think to go up 2-0 or 3-1. And it hit the tape and went a little wide. And I just thought, ooh, that, that that's too bad because that was my moment. And then suddenly John elevated – his play. <laughs> and uh, I think he beat me 6-2 or 6-3 in the third. So, uh, but it was a good match. Really, really good. And I was happy to be there. Then you went to Wimbledon and, and you had a good run. 
Yeah, I think I think I won my first match. And did I lose to Tom Gullickson in the second round? I can't quite remember what year that was. Oh, I'm sorry, you didn't make the 16 that year, the same year. Now, I think that was maybe 87 or 88. Oh, a little I'm bit sorry. Later. Okay, but um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think I, I was playing well at Wimbledon. I think I lost to a cheesehead maybe <laughs> in uh, 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 Tim Gullickson maybe. Um, but yeah, you know, I it wasn't exactly Borg Media, but I think people got to know my name which was nice, you know, and people would recognize me, which was nice. And you um, got to 31. You got your, your career high that year. Could you have could you have done better, or do you feel like you did the best you could? Yeah, you know, I, I was pretty unsophisticated. I, I wasn't working really with a coach. I was working a bit with Hank Jungle in Florida, but he wasn't really traveling with me. Um, I didn't have any arrangements like that. I mean, the prize money was good, but it wasn't great. I think like it is now, it's pretty good. You know, guys can afford coaches and, you know, sometimes players will split coaches and I just didn't really have that ability to do that kind of thing. I think I probably could have been a little bit better than I was if I'd been more savvy and a little more mature maybe. But um, yeah, I think I did pretty well with what I had. So do you believe in college tennis? Oh yeah. No, I think it's great. I, I think it's I think it's definitely the pathway these days for a lot of players. And I think it gives you a little more balance in life, a little, you know, sort of social sensibility. Um, I think it gives you a chance to develop your game, grow physically. I mean, there's so many good things about it. And if you can get a scholarship, it's a nice way to move forward if tennis wants, if you want tennis to be your career. So yeah, I'm a big fan of it. And I know, you know, players like Brad Gilbert and, you know, John McEnroe, all these great guys. I mean, guys who are really great top tenors came out of the college scene, you know, Patrick McEnroe, Jim Grab, all these guys who really did great things in our game. So I think it's a wonderful avenue to, to do big things. If, if that's something you want to do, you don't have to turn pro at 18. You don't. And um, Stevie Johnson, I think, is an example of that most recently. So here's a question for you. How'd you make the Davis Cup team in 89 and 91 <laughs> as opposed to you know, back when you were 30 in the world? Yeah, well, you know, you're doing some good research because that stuff's buried pretty deep. You know, uh, Tom Gorman was the captain at that time. Uh, I think there were some matches on grass, and I was also a practice partner for a match with the German side when when Becker and Yalen and these guys were quite strong on on the, the carpet. It was a German carpet, and uh, I mean, Gore liked the fact that I had a nice serve and that I could give Agassi and uh, Brad Gilbert some return sort of practice. And so I was an ingredient in some of those teams. It was really fun to be a part of it. That poster over your left shoulder is, is that Davis cup from Hartford? Uh, that no. is, you know, that's uh, funny. I should admit that's Brad Gilbert's wife, Kim. She designed that poster, but yeah, I think that's uh, might be 1981 or 1991. I can't quite read it, but uh, yeah, that is a, a great souvenir of the Davis cup era. Yeah. Kim Gilbert you know designed that. Shapiro, you know your stuff. Kim Gilbert designed that. Yeah, Kim Gilbert designed that. She wow, fantastic! That. Yeah, nineteen ninety-one U.S. Davis Cup. Ninety-one. That's what I thought. That's cool. I know a little bit about this, but can you tell the story how you became a broadcaster? When did you know it was time to get off the court? Well, you know, it was the. I don't want to say it was the inevitable decline because you, I think all players sort of know what's coming. Yes, but you, you hate to admit it. But I think. I was starting to lose matches. My ranking was dropping. Um, 
I was married with you started with losing young... matches. Sorry, you started losing matches that you used to thought you could you'd, you'd win. Yeah, maybe you know I was losing close matches and you know a little more pressure on you to win matches. You know, I think the elite guys maybe don't have that kind of pressure that some of the you know I was a guy from you know thirty to a hundred maybe, and there's a little more pressure as you get older to maintain your points, maintain your entry, so that you can continue to earn money because my primary source of revenue was prize money. You know, we didn't have the big contracts, at least where I was ranked. Um, but so, you know, I was a, a young family man, and I needed to maybe make more of a living. So um, I was playing an event in Stover, Vermont, and it was a special event. Again, another special event ahead of the U.S. Open. Still. I lost early, and um, a gentleman approached me and said, would you like to do commentary this weekend? So obviously, Craig, the fact that I had lost and I was available made me <laughs> a commentator. So I, I did my first job in Stowe, Vermont with uh, Bruce Beck, who's a legendary yeah. sportscaster in New York. I don't know if you know. Of course. Uh, Bruce Beck. But uh, it was uh, sort of, uh, it planted a few seeds, got me going in the industry. And eventually I started working with Prime Network. And, you know, and a little further down the road was Tennis Channel. And I worked a little bit in London for Sky Sports. So, yeah, the first seed happened uh, in Vermont. You were alongside Barry McKay for quite some time, too. Um, what was that experience like? Yeah, I mean, it's well, Barry was another Midwestern guy out of Cincinnati, Ohio. So he and I had a very similar sensibility. You know, we tend to look outward at the world, not quite so much in. So it's, it brings tears to my eyes to mention Barry. But uh, yeah, good man who taught me a lot about life and about uh, I didn't mean to shake you up, Leaf. She's getting emotional. Let me let's just stop there for a second. I want to I want to ask you this. What is what do you enjoy the most about broadcasting? Well, you know, it's it's a wonderful collaboration with this team around you. And you know, you've got someone working beside you and and that's a nice form of doubles, you know, and you're working together to try and tell the story, try not to get in the way of the story and hopefully respect the players who are playing. But yeah, it's a nice way to stay in the game that we love. Um, you know, I've been very fortunate that way because it's a very competitive industry. There are a lot of good voices out there. And, uh, you know, for, for me to have been around as long as I have, it's it's been a pleasure. But yeah, I think it's that collaborative format with a team working together because there are a lot of people behind the scenes besides, you know, me on camera or when you hear my voice. Do you have a favorite gig? Is there, is there an all-time <laughs> favorite gig? You know, I used to love doing the American events when we used to tour around America, you know, Houston, San Jose, um, all these wonderful events. Indianapolis, we did the Hamlet in Long Island. There was a tournament in Orlando for a while. Houston is obviously still on the calendar, which is a nice event. But it's a little bit, I get a little bit sad and nostalgic about missing those fine events were once a part of our tennis fabric in the U.S. So those, those events are drying up a little bit. Is there a most detested gig? Is there like the worst <laughs> gig there is? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, you know, right. I suppose when it comes, to, I mean, what kind of check are you making? I don't. <laughs> maybe that's <the> decider. <laughs> For sure. Let's move into the fourth set. This is the ten ball scramble. I just say it, and you say what comes in your mind. Man, this is tough. This is tough on me. No, man, this is the easiest part of the whole the whole thing. Come on, here we go. Ready? <laughs> You ready? Yes. Your favorite tournament? A Wimbledon. Favorite court? Boy, that's a, that's a good one. You know, 
I, uh, boy, you know, there's so many wonderful tennis courts around the world. It's hard to say one of them. How about, uh, you know, I won the, the, the 35 doubles at Wimbledon on the old court one at Wimbledon before they tore it down and built the new one. So I, I might say that court because I have some good memories of that old court that doesn't exist anymore. Court one, Wimbledon. Favorite city? Too many to list, but I, I mean, off the top of my head, probably New York City. I mean, is there a better city when you drive and you get that energy, that pulse? I mean, it's top city. Favorite player growing up? Well, you know, it's funny. As a player, I, I, had, I had sort of a triumvirate of three guys I admired. It was John McEnroe, Vitas Gerolitis, and Jimmy Connors. I saw a little bit of what I wanted to be in each of them. And you played, and you played all of them. I played all of them. I trained with Vitas. I never played him, but uh, you know, I wanted to have the flash and the style that he had. I love Jimmy's way he played and competed. I love Mac's flair and his artistry. Plus, Mac was one of the guys who would go out with us at night and have a beer. It was a lot of fun. You're cool with Mac. Oh no, Mac and I get along good. Yeah. Your greatest win. Well, I mean. It has to be the Yvonne Lendl upset at Queens Club. I mean, that was sort of the the trigger to a lot of good things unfolding for me that week and then further down the road. I mean, Craig, I lived on that in, in London. They thought I was a somebody. I got a nice gig <laughs> calling uh, tennis for Sky Sports for many years there. So it was really it was really wonderful result. Coming off the mat against teachers, a nice win too, I got to say. <laughs> Seems like you probably Don't have a lot. Don't tell Brian. Don't tell Brian that. <laughs> Your worst loss. Oh, I don't know. You know, it's funny. I, I do tend to remember the losses more than others, but um, the, the worst loss was played Jimmy Connors in Memphis. And I had two match points in the final set tie break, or at least getting to maybe one at five, six in the third, and maybe another in the tie break. And I ended up losing that match, served for it in the third too, just to make it even more painful. And it was Jimmy got me that day. And I remember just crying in the locker room. That Tough still one. stings, man. That stings. Yeah. Uh, the, that was the, one you can tell your grandkids about, and I blew it, man. I blew yeah. it. But Jimmy was a tough out, man. The racket you played with in 1984, what was your racket? Oh, man, that's so good. I mean, I was a head tennis player my whole life. So I went from Dunlop Max Ply to Wilson Pro Staff to the Red Head, which was such a great racket. And then the profile. So it was probably in 84, it was probably some form of the head profile. Wow. Good um, stick, man. Good stick. <laughs> uh, size of your grip? Uh, you know, I, I was probably a five eighths, but I went to a four and a half because I usually wrapped some towel around it or maybe a over wrap, you know, like, kind of like Gilbert used to do. So I had a few, oh, you know, man. things going on that were unique. Nobody plays with grips that big anymore. It's so <laughs> strange. It's so crazy. I know. I'm giving away my age. The best endorsement deal you ever had. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure it was uh, lucrative. I think I might have made a little bit of money with, you know, head clothing a couple of years. Uh -huh. um, when you, I might have got paid a little bit of money to show up at some of the smaller events. Yeah. But it, it wasn't yeah. much to talk about, you know, not compared to what the boys are getting these days. And they deserve. But... Um, after, know, I think Queen, I after, gotten, after Queens, though, you got some uh, appearance fees here and there? 
I did. You know, I did. I think, you know, I got somewhere between, you know, five and 10,000, which were legal, I think. I guess they can't get me now, can they, Craig? No. <laughs> uh, big entourage or lean and mean? How do you, uh, what do you, what's your opinions of the, 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 the big entourages that we're seeing now out there? You know, I, I travel lean and mean, and I, I, I don't want to say that the community on the tour is a little different with the sort of the entourages traveling, but I, I do tend to think that the players have their teams now. Um, and, and so maybe the players don't get to know each other as well. I, I hope that's not a broad generalization, but I think there's something to that. You know, we used to go out in teams of five to 10 guys and go have dinner or drinks or whatever it might be. So I don't want to say that camaraderie was more or less, but I will say it's different from what it is now with all these huge traveling teams. What's it like to travel with a stringer? Geez, that must be great. <laughs> well, <laughs> these stringers are getting rich. Hang on a second. Now, last but not least, you've been married since you were like in your 20s, huh? Have you yeah, been... we married in 88. So Marie and I were on the tour together for a few years before retiring. And, you know, she we've been together for a long run. In fact, we met in Tokyo I was playing some challenger events. She was on one of her first modeling assignments. So it's a great uh, love story that began in Japan. Hang on a second. You were playing Tokyo <laughs> and you met your wife. Was she at the tennis or you, you met her out? Yeah, we were out. Again, we were with a group of about eight to 10 guys at this nightclub where a lot of uh, Westerners hung out. It happened that a lot of models hung out there as well. Funny as that should be. <laughs> But uh, she was with a group of eight to 10 gals who were celebrating one of the uh, gals being married. So it was a pretty nice occasion. And, you know, I met Maria and I had, I was fighting all the other guys off the rest of the night. You've been with the same woman since 88. That's right. We met in April of 82. Um, April and then 82. we sort of had to figure, figure it out from there on in, but um yeah, she was with me through the, the difficult times when there wasn't a lot of money and some of the good times where, you know, it's been good. Lee Shiras meets his wife in Tokyo, man. That is top <laughs> level. That's fantastic. You know, it's funny enough, a quick story. I don't think I was the only met. I, I think there was a German tennis player who also met a woman that he ended up marrying in Germany. So um, I don't know what's happening in Japan. If you, if you want to meet a woman, Japan's a place to go. She's a Canadian, by the way. I don't know. <laughs> is it is there a secret to uh that kind of longevity you know uh well when you find the right person you just got to stick it out through thick and thin it's it's not easy when you're living a you know sort of this itinerant lifestyle but uh, she traveled a bit too with modeling so she had a sense of what the world was all about she'd uh, schedule work in sydney when the australian tour would start so we'd spend time in australia she booked uh, work in Barcelona for a month when the European tour was on. So we did sort of uh, work our lives around our, our work. So that worked okay. Leaf Shire is making it work. <laughs> Let's move into the fifth and final set. This is, Man, this is tough. This I'm, is the, fatigue's becoming a factor. This is the king of the court. If you were the king of tennis and you could make a change, could be anything. Could be a rule, could be something on the tour. What would it be? Is there anything, uh, anything that really gets your goat that you'd love to see flipped, changed? Yeah, I mean, I'd like to see, you know, players more easily identified. You know, I, I don't like it when, you know, you've got three or four guys on the court with doubles, perhaps, and all of them are wearing the same outfit. I'd like each player to have their own individual look and appearance so that they could be identified in that way. 
Um, you know, I, I'm not, I, I don't know whether the tours will ever get together. I think there might be some possibilities in that inherently moving forward, you know, in terms of sponsorship and generating, you know, more public interest in our sport. We'll see how that goes. But, you know, I think the sport's going in a good direction. I think I'd like to see more grassroots tennis, you know, more tennis. You know, back in the day, John McEnroe, Guillermo Vilas would play 50 exhibitions across the U.S., and they'd go to places where there was no tennis. And so these small cities would get a chance to see who John McEnroe was and what tennis was all about. So I think I'd like to see you know, the, the big names in our sport <clears throat> carry the sport to, you know, uh, you know, sort of distant spaces in our planet, but I'm not sure how we get that done, but I think there are some good things that we don't see in the game anymore. Hey man, I got to tell you, I have thoroughly enjoyed this. What a great way to kick off the fortnight. Uh, at least for me, that was a pleasure. Uh, this has been great, man. I love talking grass court tennis. It really is my favorite time of the year. I'm just so sad. You know, maybe if I was leading the tour, I'd say, hey, let's get a Masters Series event on grass so that, you know, our biggest and best tennis event has the support of the tour with a biggest event event on the ATP. So, you know, these are little things, but I love the grass court season. Thanks, man. It's great to be a part of this. Hey, man, that was tremendous. Uh, are you going to be large and in charge on the network for the fortnight? Do you have stuff to do? Yeah, not so much. You know, we have, you know, not as much live tennis on Tennis Channel, but uh, I'll be busy this summer in the hardcourt season in North America, so looking forward to that. But I'll be watching uh, Wimbledon right alongside you, man. Leif Shiris, this was tremendous. Have a really good uh, fortnight. Have a great summer. I will see you down the road, and you are released. All right, man. Thanks for the five-setter. Huge thank you to Leaf Shiris and thank you to Sergio Tacchini. See them at SergioTacchini.com and use my code CRAIG30 in all caps at checkout to receive 30% off of your order. As I mentioned earlier, be on the lookout for the Goran Ivanisevich Wimbledon special t-shirt. Max Loeb edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Till then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.